Hi there, and a very warm welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of People Soup. It's Ross McIntosh here. We're exploring the delivery of training based upon acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, in the workplace. We have my ACT pal, Paul Flexman, and together we redesigned an ACT in the workplace training protocol, which was then adapted by our colleague and pal, Jamie Person, to deliver to students at Canada's National Ballet School. One of the students at the school was dancer Leo Hepler, our star guest, who came on the show to reflect upon his experiences of receiving ACT training. I'll bring Leo in at this point just for a taster. There wasn't any pressure, you know, you weren't going to get marked on anything, you didn't have to do any assignments, you were actually just sort of talking about what it's like to be a human, alive, sort of existing in the world, trying to function and Mm. sort of here are some tools to help you. It just sort of felt like wow, I haven't really had something like this before and where it has, where has it been all my yeah. life? Like, it, it felt great. Like, I was really excited about, about it. Um, it just got to a point where um, we had all these tools that were in the class and then it, it was just a matter of sort of going out into the world and trying them and sort mm. of seeing how they la- lasted and, and stood up against time. In part one, we talk about the ballet school and the ballet company environment and hear how Jamie, as a former student of the National Ballet School, presented a compelling case to introduce the students to acceptance and commitment therapy. The director, Mavis Staines, was already known for her progressive approach to education. We also hear what Leo took away from the training. People Soup is a podcast that takes evidence-based psychology and behavioural science with the aim of making it accessible, fun and useful for people in the workplace and beyond. This is based upon a foundation of contextual behavioural science and other complementary psychological approaches. We aim to make our content interesting for humans, whether you're curious about psychology in the workplace, a psychologist, a leader, a therapist, a team member, anyone really who reflects on how they show up at work. It was psychologist Abraham Maslow who said, a first-rate soup is more creative than a second-rate painting. That was the inspiration for this podcast. More than ever, the world of work is a heady mix of people, behaviour, events and challenges. When the blend is right, it can be first-rate. Behavioural science and psychology has a lot to offer in terms of recipes, ingredients, seasoning, spices and utensils. So welcome to People Soup. Before we go on, I thought it would be fun to share some of our top listening cities on SoundCloud this week. And in no particular order, they are London, Barrie in Canada, Glasgow, Brighton, Hanoi, Tel Aviv, Bristol, Trim, Melbourne, Ronkonkoma in the US, Vienna, Austin, and Bangalore. Mega thanks to all our listeners, and hopefully you're going to enjoy this episode. So let's crack on, get a brew on, and listen to my conversation with Paul, Jamie, and Leo. Supers. We are in the heart of East London. We are around Jamie's kitchen table, and I have three guests for you today. It's the first. It's the first for people soup. Three guests around the table. I'm slightly anxious, but also very delighted. Um, I have my dear colleague, Dr. Paul Flaxman here, who's a, a bit of a regular on the old podcast. I have my pal Jamie, Jamie Person, who is my psychology pal. We deliver 
interventions together at ballet companies in the UK. She's also a former ballet dancer, but you'll hear more about that in a moment. And our, I feel like doing a drum roll, <laughs> but our star guest, you don't mind being our star guest, do you? It's yeah. a lot of pressure, but I'll see <laughs> but I, I think you can handle it. Okay. Our star guest is Leo Hepler, who is also a dancer. And more will be revealed in a moment. But just to get us warmed up, I'm just going to ask our guests to do what we often do on People Soup. And my question to you guys is, if you were to be announced by a piece of music every time you walked in a room, whether it be at work or at home or in your personal life, for the next few weeks, what would that piece of music be for you? What would your go-to piece of music be? And I'm going to start... I'm going to start with Jamie because she's smiling at me yeah. and then I'm guessing she's got a piece of music ready. I do. So I'm having a little bit of a Prince moment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, I think I'm going to go with Raspberry Beret. Mm. Not because it's the coolest Prince song, but because it's the one that was like, I remember in my youth. And is there a particular section you'd have playing when you enter a room? Is it that chorus? Yeah, I think it's the chorus. And also it feels kind of summery, doesn't it? Mm. It just really reminds me, I went to a Prince concert once and we were way at the back, but there's this wild woman in front of us with a tambourine. And when Raspberry Beret, Raspberry Beret came on, she actually got one out of a bag. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't, you know me, I wasn't impressed. But hey ho. Paul, thank you very much, Jamie. Paul, what would your what would your piece of music yeah, I was be? Thinking hard about this, I bet you were. Tough question. <laughs> in fact, I had some panic thoughts outside, <laughs> thinking, "What am I going to say?" And I thought, "Well, because I'm it's like a dance theme today." Okay. So I thought, "What was my greatest dancing moment?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it brought me back to a memory when I was in Torquay, Devon, in a in a disco dancing competition to "Come On Eileen." By Dexy's Midnight Runners. Wow. So I think if it's only for the next few weeks, that's what I'd choose. That was my big dancing moment. Would it it be a particular section in that song? Because it builds up to a sort of frenzy at the end. Yeah, I think think it's where it it, it builds up. Yeah. It's a nice fiddle solo at the beginning. Yeah, there is that as well. I think it's the building up when it's, you know, I was probably letting myself go. Yeah, can I ask what was... What were you wearing for your routine? Um, I'm all over this now, man. I can't remember. <laughs> I'm imagining it was sort of double denim. Uh, not quite today, but yeah, denim. It probably was denim with like stickers, you know, or like patches sewn onto the jeans. Right. Mm, solid you know, fashionable again now, I might add. And the jeans still fit me. Which is, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a triumph, man. And did you have a jaunty neckerchief for him? No, no, I didn't dress like Dex's Midnight Runners. Okay. And, and the final question is, did you win? No, I think I might have been runner-up. Right, it's it's, it's, right. yeah. it's not about the winning part. No. But thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> no worries, mate. You know me. There you are. Just like the question itself, I mean, I'm not really playing fair here, but it sounds like such a sort of terrible reality to have the same piece of music played every time you enter a room like I can't imagine that <laughs> but it's, it's not forever it's just, but even for a few weeks I think I get really tired of it and I wouldn't I mean I'm a sort of person I, I don't like to lis- listen to the same song very much and so I've, I've actually from an experience I had this morning I walked into the my ballet studio before I when we warm up and this morning everyone was quiet for some reason it's because there was a guest in the room but usually everyone's talking and arguing and it was really so it was just complete silence. Mm. So there's a John Cage 
a famous piece of music where there is no music. It's just mm. like four minutes of the the musician sitting there in silence. Mm. So I think I think it actually be really kind of scary on some levels, but also really exciting to like walk into a room and everyone would just have to go quiet. It would just be completely silent. And then imagine the next like I feel like the things you would say after that song happened would be really kind of special. If everyone had to think for four minutes before they said it. You clearly put a lot of thought into this lyric because you thought I, I, might... I consider it more of a little legal loophole. You thought I might have <laughs> yeah. to sing it. Yeah. So or something where you're okay. gonna get the rights and put it in and I'd like see that. Get the rights. <laughs> yeah, that'd be tricky, man. I don't know how that uh, works, yeah. Good work. Thank good you. Good work. Hats off to you. Now, Jamie hasn't been on the podcast before, but she will have a very own episode in not too distant future. But Jamie, wonder if you just... Because you're my psychology pal, but as I said, you're also a former dancer. Could you just give us a sort of potted history. career history? Yeah. So um, I trained at a, quite a famous school in Canada called the National Ballet School of Canada and got my first job at the National Ballet of Canada, the, the big company. That's and is that in Toronto? In Toronto, yeah. Had quite a kind of fast and furious career in that I was sort of promoted quite quickly um, but decided that I wanted to spread my wings so I came over to the UK in my early 20s and joined the Royal Ballet and did the rest of my career there. Ended as a principal dancer around the age of 30 having started doing some school so I went back and did my first degree whilst I was still dancing and then followed that up with a couple more and Mm -hmm. eventually became an organisational psychologist. Yay. Yeah. And as an aside, me and Jamie do work together. I can't remember if I've already said this, but me and Jamie work together with ballet companies in the UK. Now, Leo, there is a connection, mm-hmm. the Canada connection. But would you mind telling us a bit about what's brought you to where you are in your career to date? A lot of airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Vietnam. So I grew up in uh, Western, uh, Western Canada, in Alberta, small town in Alberta. And I also went to the National High School of Canada when I was 13. And so I've, I, I, it wasn't ever a sort of a calling moment where I, mm. I knew that I, you know, I saw the Nutcracker and I wanted to be on stage or something. It was mm. more something that I started in when I was three and never fell out of. I, I always got enough gratification and sort of, it was rewarding enough that I stayed in it. Mm. And um, at this school in Canada, I found really great sort of system of people and, and support work that I stayed there for five years and mm. all the way through, even though I didn't know if I was going to originally. Mm. So I, I sort of kept pushing along and graduating in Canada. And then um, on graduating, I'm a very tall dancer. You can't tell through the microphone, but I'm about <laughs> six foot three. And, I can um, confirm this. Yeah. It, yeah. It's um, sort of just the de- with the demands that mm. are sort of necessary on um, young professionals and um, sort of male professional dancers. It, it, I, I felt like I could I could use another year of training mm. um, and development before I started off as a professional. And so I, through the artistic director in Canada, had a connection with uh, the Royal Ballet School. And so I've just spent the last year in London, uh, sort of topping up on my training and, mm. and uh, exploring and watching lots of dance. And it's been it's been really fun. Thank you very much. And we've heard, are we allowed to say? Hmm? Oh, I your next, so. your next yeah. step is? Um, I'm doing the Dutch National Ballet's junior company next year in Amsterdam. Uh, so I 
probably in about three weeks' time. It feels more like, you know, it'll be forever away, but it, yeah, it's only in about three weeks, which wow. is really kind of exciting. The first and real, real gig. You congratulations. Know. Thank you. And you're going home first. Yeah, before. yeah, I sort of, um, my whole life for the past year, couple mm. of years has been like um, intense periods of work punctuated by these really kind of slow relaxing periods at home where I get back mm. with my family and stuff and so I can always use one of those and so I'm really excited for that brilliant yeah now the reason the reason one of the reasons we've invited you on is because round the table we've got we work with this type of behavioral science called ACT acceptance and commitment therapy mm-hmm. and we've got a nice sort of sequence around the table so we've got me and Paul who've worked together developing or redeveloping a a protocol like a a training for ACT and then we've got Jamie who's worked with us on that and also adapted it Mm -hmm. to deliver to yourselves in the help me out with the National Ballet School of Canada the National Ballet School of Canada I always want to put a royal in there Mm. that's not right there's there's nothing wrong about it then we've got you who Mm -hmm. has experience the, the training from Jamie, so we've yeah. got this lovely sequence of events. So we just kind of want to explore that a bit in in this episode. Mm-hmm. Where do we begin? Maybe we start with me and Paul and Jamie just talking yeah. about the 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 protocol, the, the revised protocol. Is that why did why did why did we feel a need to to move on from the famous existing protocols? What was, the, what was the motivation? I can't... I think it was uh, to train teachers, school teachers. God, I've forgotten. Yeah, yeah so it was a, it was a research uh, grant we got from the British yeah, Academy. British Academy, yeah. And we used to deliver the training in kind of half-day sessions. So people might have got three half-day sessions, but we couldn't get school teachers out for that period of time. We could only get them out on these two-hour... Kind of free periods that they had so we decided we were going to create a new program that was four sessions of two hours each mm. and that was the spur really and then we just started adapting it and updating it yeah and it was even five sessions at one point because yeah. i remember i was yeah. delivering for this research project at one time it was five sessions which is great because you could really build the relationship up with the teachers i think you can in the four session too mm. but five sessions was something quite Quite special. It's demanding quite a lot of their time, but it seemed to fit in quite well. Mm. So, so Jamie, you you were invited by the ballet school, or yeah, how did that work? So I've been um, I've been talking to the the director of the school, and I've been talking to her for a few years. In fact, she was the director when I was there as well. She became the, the sort of director or principal of the school whilst I was still there. She was very young when she took on that post. And she's, it's a very progressive school and she's a very progressive director. And um, the school has been always kind of ahead of the curve in terms of considering and putting in place things to support the young dancers in their development. Um, and so they were quite, uh, they were sort of world leaders in bringing psychological support to the young dancers. So having access to clinical psychologists or psychiatrists, particularly around kind of managing when things went really wrong and sort of preventative work too mm. at the school. Um, but but Mavis Staines and I were sort of talking about, you know, sort of the next stage of moving on from 
sort of a, a real focus on prevention and pathology, things going really, really wrong, and actually being a little bit more ambitious and maybe bringing in some psychological training, which was more around um, developing the whole person and thinking even wider than that of kind of how do we want to influence the dance industry of sort of, you know, whole people who are going to move things forward in terms of how they, when they move into leadership positions, they, they sort of bring something which is a bit more progressive because perhaps somewhat famously the kind of training regimes for ballet dancers are quite harsh sometimes Mm. and particularly in some parts of the world. Um, You start quite young, it's very intensive, it's very competitive. Dancers are also selected who are very, have the capacity to be very disciplined, um, manage a fair bit of kind of pain. So it's kind of ripe for uh, both things going wrong for dancers, young dancers, but also for sort of perpetuating some of those traditional methods of teaching and raising of young artists, essentially. So I kind of said to Mavis, oh, well, I've been learning about this, you know, acceptance commitment therapy. I think it could be really interesting. Would you mind giving me a little bit of face time with some of the some of the senior students just to talk to them about it, sort of try out some of the exercises, mm-hmm. see what they think? And to my sort of surprise and delight, she said yes. <laughs> so um, we arranged for me to work with a pilot group of young dancers and Leo was part of that pilot group. So that's how it came about. Lovely. Mm. And the way you describe the the career and the the intensity the of it, yeah. it sounds terrifying. Mm. It sounds, and I find this working, doing my limited exposure to this place at work. I, you know, I find it really. I get giddy and overexcited, and also find it fascinating and intriguing that that it's it for me as an outsider. It is really, really intense. Mm. It feels quite brutal at times, the, the physicality of it. I don't know whether this is bad, is it feels quite competitive. I guess the more I get to know it, the more I see really lovely connections between mm. the dancers. Mm. So I think it's very competitive at certain stages. Mm. So it's obviously competitive to kind of get into one of the big international schools. It's competitive get to get a job in, a, in mm. one of the big companies. And then there's this sort of mini, I guess, competitive aspects when I'm thinking in school you know of kind of who gets the big parts and mm-hmm. and all of that but yeah whenever you're with people of your own age there'll be that I think competitive edge that mm-hmm. comes out but I wouldn't use the word people often do sort of ask me how competitive it is mm-hmm. but I wouldn't use competitive as the one word to describe mm-hmm. it ultimately terrifying is one of them that you use <laughs> yeah. but it's not always that either it's sort of it's a whole system that it can be really Mm. toxic and not work for people but mm. sometimes you can catch an edge and, and it's like a bit of an addiction like you're doing this thing that releases all of these chemicals mm. and this exercise in your body that you can you can really get addicted to the process of working in class and mm. the the sort of just the the daily practice of going in and doing the same things really methodically and working on your body and having sort of a, a constant in mm. in um as you go through your life, and it can be really um, healthy mm. as well, I think. Um, it's a discipline. It's yeah. a discipline in a way that a lot of people don't experience. You know, you yeah. go six days a week, you get up and you do the same, you go through the same motions mm. in daily class, and then a number of hours of rehearsal and training. Um, and you train for the kind of classic eight, nine years mm. in order to prepare for launching yourself professionally. 
Mm-hmm. So it sort of fits that kind mm. of mold. So it sort of it takes, you know, people often focus, you know, understandably on the kind of physicality of it and that you have to be right physically for mm. it. But actually, mentally, you have to be right for it too. You have mm. to be sort of willing to yeah. work at that qu- actually quite slow pace, particularly in the early years of training. It's very, very methodical, like mm-hmm. you say, the training process. Yeah. Um, and yeah, sort of be willing to get up and just keep working on the same things six days a week. Is that part of the selection process in your experience? The, the, the mental side and the physical side, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I think less so when you first get into a school or a company, mm. um, because it's quite difficult to test that. But then, and I think this goes for most international schools, So you sort of have to go through a number of auditions to get a place in the school. But then Mm. every year, essentially, it's like a kind of year-long audition because they then shed dancers at the end of every academic year. So that's when they can kind of see whether psychologically Mm. you have what it takes to kind of do it. And and there is a lot of shedding. I mean, Mm -hmm. particularly sort of during the puberty years when bodies change Mm. a lot. Um, Wow. Yeah. So that's just, yeah, whether your psychological capacity, it sort of... Just sort of it separates mm. into different groups whether or not you've it's it's worked for you to yeah. get through that year or not. So I guess in some ways it mm. does separate. And did, did you say you started when you were three? Oh, well, I started um, walking around like a penguin and, and when I was three, and you know, holding <laughs> little you know little pumpkins and pretending to hold a pumpkin in class. So it's it's not it's nowhere near the. It was recreationally, um, and I guess, so people usually um, have the distinction between their professional training, which started when I was 13, 13 but I've been okay. dancing since I was very young, yeah. Wow. Much like Paul, man. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Jamie, when... When you got the gig yeah. and you'd convinced Mavis that this was something to try and you were going for the pilot, what were you thinking? What did, you, did you have a sense of what might work from the protocol and what, what might not? Or were you just mm. really testing and getting feedback? How did that work? Yeah, I, mean, I think I would, I would say I was testing and getting feedback. It was quite informal, the mm. sessions that we did. Mm. So I sort of, I didn't do any PowerPoint or sort of presentational aspects. It was all conversation and exercises I mean, in some ways, I would say I did a kind of cut-down version of the protocol mm. that I, I, you know, learned from you guys mm. and practiced with you guys. Um, and then I asked for feedback and, and sort of said, tell me, really tell me what you thought and actually got lots of feedback from you guys after the sessions about what kind of stuck for you, mm-hmm. what exercises you liked, what felt helpful, what mm. was a little bit harder to understand or they didn't kind of get on with. And then I sort of used that to inform the next time that I went to the school when I was going to be seeing um, dancers for the young dancers for sort of longer periods and over a week. Mm. Um, and, and then so it just kind of progressed over the last few years. So I sort of started with really that protocol mm-hmm. um, that you guys that you guys developed. And then we kind of messed around with it a little bit, you know, so I, I sort of pulled in some exercises, some sort of Russ Harris stuff, you know, so I've used various exercises for, like, you know, the, the choice point and, mm. and some of his stuff around sort of dilemma, sort of working through dilemmas. Um, I also did a course and sort of pulled in some stuff from uh, Louise Hayes uh, manuals for working with adolescents. Mm. Um, 
that was one of the things that was, I think, quite key, as I said from the beginning to Mavis, that, you know, I'm not a, a sort of child psychologist. So I sort of, I feel like I, I'm only happy to work with young dancers who are sort of 16 and older. Mm. And I've really stuck with that and it feels right. Um, but what I've, what, what we've kind of come to now is that with the slightly younger, so 16 and 17 year olds, I'm doing group work with them. And then the, the young dancers who are sort of at the end of their training, I do one-to-one -one work with them and sort of offer that if they'd like it. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of moved around, done different sorts of things. I've brought in presentational elements and dropped them again, mm -hmm. just depending on the group that I have, I sort of use different, mm. different tools. And I guess, I guess for the P-supers out there who use the, the protocol, when we do train the trainer, Paul, we always encourage people to make it their own. Yeah. To, to bring in stuff that they, they know will work for their organisation. Because people who are in an organisation or know the context have a more of a much more of a sense of knowing what will work there. Mm. And sometimes people are a bit um, reluctant or think they have to do it exactly like we do. But it, it's really that flexibility of knowing what will work mm. in, in the particular environment, I think. So it's great to hear the different sources you went to yeah and also i mean we sort of played around with the size of the groups too so i did one year where i worked with sort of a whole class at a time mm. um which was really challenging and so the next time i went i said i don't want to work with that <laughs> so how many how much is a whole class how many people? i think some of them were kind of you know 20 some in a room that's a, and, that's and a that big felt gig. like too much and i think particularly for that age group as well because there's a, there's a lot of variation in development too and sort of maturity in the group around 16 17 there's mm. a big difference so just by kind of cutting it down to kind of between six and eight then you can manage that more mm. in that smaller group and, and again it, it's you knowing the environment and, yeah. and partly what you're comfortable with but partly what will be effective for yeah. that, that organization yeah and sort of being that you know a little bit relaxed about it that for some of the young dancers you know, they might not be quite ready for mm. some of that stuff. I remember one year, a couple of years ago, um, one of the young dancers, he, he, uh, he was really struggling to engage with the group session. And uh, he was in the sort of younger group that I was working with, so probably 16-year-olds. And he made some kind of very kind of lame excuse to leave the session. You know, I think he said he had like a tummy ache or something like mm. that. And I just said, oh, you know, of course, go take care of yourself. Um, and I thought I won't see him again. And I didn't. He didn't come to it mm. the other session. But he, you know, he was just really struggling to kind of engage with the material. Funnily enough, I went back the next year and he asked to see me for a one-to-one -one session. And just that year of kind of growing up, he was just sort of ready mm. for it. And we had a really, you know, nice time together. Mm. He was kind of able to engage with it a year later. But he just was not, I think, wasn't mature enough mm. to get on with it. I'm wondering how best to explore this, but I'm really interested, Liam, in, in your experience of, mm -hmm. of this protocol, both. I'm guessing you were a part of that pilot group. Yeah. Um, and any recollections from, from that? Yeah, the pilot group, it happened during a very hectic week of sort of, they're all, it was during this festival, there was a whole bunch of things going on. And so I have to say, I, I remember um, it was really good to consolidate the work that was in the pilot group that um, when you came back later in the term and um, we had these dedicated sessions with um, with the group in the ballet school the schedules are really really busy and so mm. I found that even just having having time with your class that wasn't about academics and it wasn't about dance it was about 
something a bit, it was really, there wasn't any pressure, you know, you weren't going to mm-hmm. get marked on anything, you didn't have to do any assignments, you were actually just sort of talking about what it's like to be a human, alive, sort of existing in the world, trying to function, and mm. sort of, here are some tools to help you. It just sort of felt like, wow, I haven't really had something like this before, and where it has it, where has it been all my yeah. life? Like, it, it felt great. Like, I was really excited about, about it. Um, it just got to a point where um, we had all these tools that were in the class, and then it, it was just a matter of sort of going out into the world and trying them and sort mm. of seeing how they la- lasted and, and stood up against time. And that's sort of been interesting to, it's been about a year now since I've properly sort of done the sessions and, mm-hmm. and now it's sort of hearing what you talk stuck, about it is, yeah, yeah, sort of reflecting on what has stuck and what hasn't. Yeah. Mm. So the, the way we generally introduced, and I know Jamie used, because it was a, a framework of, of the three pillars. So maybe if we use that to structure this conversation a bit, to give us ourselves a bit of a guide. Yeah. That's so, right. so that central pillar we call, well, it's, it's evolving as we mm-hmm. speak, but we call aware, it's about noticing, and it's about, it's like getting off autopilot and coming into that present moment and skills around that. And Jamie, I don't know, you want to say yeah, what, what so, you covered? I mean, I think I've done, di- I did different exercises with you guys. Mm-hmm. I know we did the um, mindful eating, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. We did that together, didn't yeah. we? Possibly in that first pilot session. Mm. Yeah, we did. You brought some cranberries and we, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what do you remember about that? I do. I remember that. And I remember the second time you brought cranberries. I was hoping you were going to bring something else, but that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about what eating. Were you and then, for, like? Well, she, she said we were going to do some eating, and I was really excited to do some proper <laughs> eating, but we just got to mindfully eat a cranberry. But that is the sort of lesson that, you know, lasts longer than just the one cranberry. Like, it was a sort of thing. And I almost feel like it was sometimes with lessons like this, like you... You, people tell you to be mindful, like everywhere you go, there's always all the, you know, like mindfulness, meditate, it's, it's a thing, but mm-hmm. it was almost weird enough that like having eight people, um, you know, it was probably through three different year groups. So people who you might not normally hang out with have to eat a cranberry together. That was weird enough that it, it almost sort of went into the dinner conversations and, you know, around the school and things like that. And so it almost kept, you know, self like a bit of a life of its own because yeah. it was odd. And yeah. That's that's really valuable actually, because that I'm not sure if it was your intention, but it's sort of it's sort of stuck. And mm-hmm. that in it in its being a bit mm. odd sort of made it it re- reminded you to be mindful. Like and it almost became a trigger thing. Like when I'm eating food now, I've talked about this thing that happened to me today mm. at a dinner table. And now every time I sit at the same table, like I remember that. And mm. and so I found that worked out very almost mm. serendipitously how it it sort of kept triggering for me i'd always sit at a certain table and i would remember the cranberry so that was really um that was interesting um but that was an interesting exercise i just remember how some people were so disturbed by it mm. and, and really taking the time to notice something um and some people it it was fine and enjoyable mm. yeah mm. and and so i'm glad that there were enough different sort of exercise and, and activities that people could take their own and which mm-hmm. ones worked for them mm-hmm. yeah because we did probably different sorts of practices over the years as well didn't we some kind of short yeah. practices and longer ones and then just talking about stepping out of autopilot and kind mm-hmm. of the sorts of things we tend to do on autopilot and the things that we don't and yeah there's lots of interesting debate i think with dancers around their class and practice mm-hmm. 
you know, because sometimes mm. people talk about bits of it being on autopilot and other parts of them being really present whilst they're doing it. Yeah. And sort of the merits of both, you know. Yeah, that's yeah. it's such an interesting thing that I, I think about that all the time, actually. have a lot of personal conversations about sort of, you know, am I thinking enough about this thing? And mm. am I, can I let this thing go to muscle memory? Like, is it um, the perception of what you're thinking you're doing and what you're actually doing is mm. so so such a fine line mm-hmm. and so that sort of self-awareness i think yeah when you once you've um looked at it in one area of your life it can bleed into other areas and mm-hmm. be really um but that's what i found anyways mm-hmm. like just again from the cranberry how you would start to notice new sounds in the ballet studio or new smells in your bedroom you know just like really like weird things and it, it does make life more interesting um especially i find in a in a in an age where i mean i'm just as guilty and here i am talking about this you know today these kids on our smartphones but it really is um it's sort of like mindfulness practice and awareness practice seems like a, it can be an antidote to that because mm-hmm. just as quickly as you can check your phone and be switched out of, of a situation, you know, just, just in the moment you can be sitting back and, and when you're about to have a creative thought, you can check your phone and it's gone completely. Mm. You can go the other direction and be mindful and aware of something and, and notice it and stick with it. Somehow. Yeah. And I think that's really important to strengthen as quick as the impulse to, to go on this phone, have your phone really close. I do think that's really important to sort of recognize. I think you also picked up on a really interesting point that mindfulness is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Because we often find this in train the trainer stuff that mm. Paul would often say um, mm. a lot of nonsense written about mindfulness. I think it's yeah. all almost been damaged by its own popularity. Mm. And it's funny, in different organisations, some organisations absolutely love it and they say, yeah, talk about mindfulness, use the mindfulness word. And we go into other organisations and they'll say, don't mention mindfulness. Mm. Everybody's cynical about it and uh, they won't buy into it. And so even the same types of organisations, sometimes that's one NHS trust and not another one. So it's an unusual business, mindfulness, I think. It's become too popular almost. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I have to say I've moved more in the direction of really introducing it and working with it in the service. I mean, which is, you know, living by your values or, mm. or living your values, which is, you know, the way that you taught it to us, mm. Paul, you know, mm. from the very beginning. But I think the groups that I work with, and again, maybe because of, you know, mindfulness is just so out there and so kind of, yeah, and, and it's not necessarily being used that responsibly in terms of the promises that have been made around it. Mm. Um, I'm kind of really talking about it, like make it work for you and it's in the service of something else, you know. And also the interesting thing with dancers is that they're very good at mindfulness because it's part of their daily practice. You know, that kind of checking in with yourself, you know, so like the body scan. Dancers do body scans like many, many times a day, essentially, because it's part of the training. It's kind of, you know, this kind of checking through of like first thing in class, you stand at the bar and as you're doing your first gentle exercises, you're scanning your body, you're seeing, you know, is there soreness somewhere? Is there tightness somewhere? Do I need to adapt what I'm doing? All of that. What's different, I find, is, is that it's very judgy, the mm-hmm. mindfulness that dancers do. You know, they're kind of, they're, they're doing the body scan in order to identify kind of like you would looking under the bonnet of a car, you know, what's wrong? 
what do I need to work with today? You know, what do I need to adapt around? So I think the kind of talking about doing the check-in, but but sort of letting go of some mm. of the judgment about what you find. Is there also That's something about, about what do I need to ignore? Yeah. And just push through. Yeah, absolutely. So you're you're kind of, you know, you're finding a bit of pain and then you're kind of making the evaluation, is this a pain I need to pay attention to or is it something that I'm just going to kind of move through because mm-hmm. dancers dance in pain a lot don't they and and so you have to be quite squ- skilled at, at identifying what's the pain that you need to listen to and what's the pain that you Blimey. you just work with and at a very superficial level there's nothing so gratifying for me mm-hmm. as saying to a group of dancers if we guide if i'm guiding a meditation adopt a dignified posture <laughs> You can nail dignified postures you <laughs> if you do that in the average workplace. You get a sort of variety of it's hmm. not so elegant as as as, as um, a ballet school or a ballet company. Yeah. It, that thrilled me so much the first time, and then I thought I needed to mention it every time, and they were just looking at me like, "Who are you, you idiot?" <laughs> so I've stopped mentioning it now. The next pillar we introduce as part of this protocol is. It's around values. It's, we call it an active pillar, and it's really getting in touch with our personal values, what's of importance for us. We sometimes use values cards. Mm. I remember doing a values cards drop with you one time before you were going to Toronto at Blackfriars Station. Yeah. It was like some sort of, it was like we were in spooks. Yeah, yeah. You just came through Happy the gates. Of, yeah. I just handed over the cards, <laughs> and then we parted ways again. <laughs> but I don't know whether you... How did you how did you introduce it to Yeah, so I always introduce values when I'm working with the students mm. with mm-hmm. using values cards and doing the card sort. Um, if I have time, I kind of do something which is quite like sticks with the protocol in terms of doing the three piles, mm. taking your time, um, then sort of consolidating it, focusing on the the pile with most heat, and you know breaking it down to kind of five or six, and then down to mm. one that people would be willing to work with. Um, so that's I, I, as a first introduction. That's still how we how I work with mm. with values, and I find it really effective. But Leo, yeah. I'm interested to hear what you no, think. Me too. I I um I still have my values cards, and I um she brought them here uh, today. Yay. Just because um, <laughs> you're my favorite. <laughs> uh, but I uh, I travel with them, and I I use them because it yeah first introduction. It's sort of. I'm someone who asks a lot of questions about, like, what's what's the answer? I'm very analytical, and sometimes it can be really helpful just to look down at words and read the words that sort of correspond to sort of really deep feelings that you have about things and, and being, being able just to sort of touch and feel them and have a sensory thing was really, um, really worked well for me. And it, so it really did stick with me, just this sort of um, idea of values as sort of things that you can play with and move around in space. And I think you use the image of a compass mm-hmm. and sort of going to your north, um, which, yeah, sort of as I've been navigating this sort of period, as I've left sort of a place yeah. that I've been very comfortable with and sort of going out and marking on the world and all that, it's, I have found that a helpful image to go back to in, in times of, um, of need and... Um, yeah, the, the values cards really, I think... They, were, they, they really felt so quite sticky with the, yeah. the, the, yeah. the young dancers. I mean, I think the other thing that is... 
I get the sense it feels slightly liberating is, you know, like the protocol, it's kind of introduced in that way that you can apply this to any part of your life. Yeah. Because I think, you know, in a ballet school, it's very focused, obviously, on performance yeah. and success in that part of your life. So it feels sort of quite exciting and sometimes even a little bit radical, actually, to have a young, like a group mm. of young dancers that are so kind of laser focused mm. And sort of go, actually, we don't even have to think about dance if you don't want to. You could apply yeah. it to your relationships or, you know, your hobbies or anything you want. Mm. Um, there's no agenda here. We can mm. we can use this stuff. And and that uh, it kind of feels like it sort of relaxes the group somehow. Yeah. Or yeah. when it feels like you're doing something very personal, you're bringing yeah. something up very personal. And that's, a, you know, an incredible icebreaker in terms of group work. But yeah. also just in an institution where it can feel at times where your values are sort of, they're already established or they're in sort of the, the, the rules, like the definition of success is, is the value, you know, the, the value is in the training and, mm. and your values are already given to you somehow. This was a really great exercise to say, wait, I actually have values as a, as an individual and as a person too. And as a multifaceted individual who is, happens to be a ballet dancer and a ballet student, but also happens to, you know, have all of these other interests as well and uh, ways of looking at things. I love, I love the way you describe it as being a multifaceted person because sometimes mm. people get quite attached to those, that card sort of thinking, oh, yeah, I'm choosing these. This is sort of some sort of big ass deal that I'm choosing these values. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I love the way, I love the way you carry them around, man. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I'm a bit we of didn't, a, We yeah. didn't pay him to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, not everywhere, but I do sometimes. Mm. Yeah, feel that's all right. You don't have to take them out. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, I did have an idea about the values cards, though. Sort of um, in hindsight, I wondered. I remember like looking. So it's probably a deck of about a hundred cards or something. Yeah. And looking through them, I would sometimes come across values that I didn't really know were supposed to be values, and I, and it, there was almost like an impulse of. I remember you said we could put in our piles. Um, you know things that you wanted to be working on, or yeah. like it was very loose. So, yeah. so you don't like, have to be living this value. Exactly. It just could be something you're interested in. Yeah. So yeah. sometimes mm-hmm. you come across this value. Like for me, it was order. I remember, yeah. or sort of like organization, and it was just sort of like, wow, I've not been. I like I would just never consider that a value, and I almost sort of put it in my head. Mm-hmm. And so I almost wonder if it would be an interesting exercise to to have a group of people make their own values cards from from the beginning like not yeah. have a, a list of a hundred to write yeah. Mm. yeah and I know you leave a few bank blank cards in there but if you almost made people make their own decks from the beginning you might not even need to put them in different piles you might just have your pile mm. already and then you could you know share decks and things like that but yeah. I wondered how how that would change the relationship with the cards and and mm. um this sounds like an extension exercise. Yeah, me. yeah. This sounds like a values cards part two. Right. Because yeah. I guess yeah. if you, people were cold and you were just presented with a series of cards, oh, that's, yeah. some people would say, hey, this is amazing, I can mm-hmm. create my own values. Some people would just be Lost, kind maybe. of frozen. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But I, I, I mean, kind the other like thing I quite idea, like making it personal. Yeah. Uh, is exactly like you said, that some of the things are slightly surprising. And... Hmm. Um, I actually, I didn't adapt the cards because I know there's some values cards that have been designed specifically for, for, you know, people mm. sort of adolescents, you know, between certain ages, but I like the values cards that you guys use and, you know, the values, mm. um, and there's some things in there, which again, 
I think is quite nice with that age group as well because you know there's there's things which are kind of quite mature in a way sort of some quite mature mm. values and but actually at 16 17 why not think about start thinking about some of that stuff um so I'm sort of thinking about things like sexuality and sensuality mm. and you know in a kind of really non-judgmental way mm-hmm. um I think it feels like it opens up the space a little bit more of kind of like really we you can we could be talking about anything here. Mm. Um, it just feels quite sort of liberating with that age group, I think. Right. Any, anything else on, on values? Anything else stuck in your mind or anything? Any reflections hearing what Leo said? Mm. Yeah, I like, because uh, we think a lot about what to call this type of training. You know, we talk to lots of different mm-hmm. people, like what might you call this in your organisation? And I've really got it stuck in my mind about um, it helps you find your inner compass. Mm-hmm. It sounds a bit twee saying it to, to the uh, recording, but it's this kind of idea that it helps people think, well, what do I want to be about in my life? What do I want to guide me? And this idea of navigating and the compass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, do, I really like that. So I yeah, just reflected on the way you spoke. It was about a kind of finding a way to navigate through this interesting period of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm glad that I could I got this experience in a school though. Like and I'm I'm interested in how if if it's sort of a different relationship when you approach it in, in a working environment, if it's you know, something that you can take back to your personal life and I know sometimes that bridge can be hard to mm-hmm. to to cross yeah. from work to personal life. And so having these these tools though that were really like when you're in this room and we're learning about these things you're gonna you can take them anywhere you want um you know into the deepest sort of confusing questions about yourself that you have and about what you want to do with your life and go you know it's really i've just remembered leo's like because i seem to remember um uh they were used they were kind of adopted by dave Mm. weren't they yeah oh do you want to talk about that a little bit did you ever do any of that with dave so dave um, mm-hmm. he's well I knew him because he was in my day going back when mm-hmm. I was in school and living in residence he was one of the house parents and he's a um, wonderful man who's been working in school for years and years and years and is still a house parent but he also does some kind of I would describe him as a counsellor really so he mm-hmm. does some kind of sessions with the students I think probably mostly with the senior students is that right? Yeah. as a kind um... of open forum to have conversations about things and he started using, I think because some of the students brought the values cards to these sessions, they started mm. using them as a tool, actually, in yeah. those sessions. It might have been since I I left, but yeah. he, he was yeah, a resource that, a house parent in, in the sense that he really was a, a bit of a parent away from home. You yeah. really could go to him and just, there was, there was sort of an understanding almost that you, I, I kind of need to just talk to you about something. Mm. And can you help me with this? And and he really would, um, but I remember he was totally on board with uh, the work we were doing with you. Well, first of all, because he remembered you as a student, mm-hmm. and he's just sort of one of those... We used to watch Star Trek together. Incredible, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Next generation. Bobs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's, he's just one of those sort of National Valley School institutions, like himself. Yeah. He, he's just sort of been there the whole time, and... But yeah, I think what happened was some of the students just brought, because they were kind of excited by the, by these values cards, you know, mm-hmm. this, is, this is kind of fun, this is an interesting thing. So they brought yeah. it to one of yeah. those sessions. Mm-hmm. And so I think, and, and then that really wonderful way that you want it to be used, mm-hmm. they sort of, you know, because Dave hadn't been introduced to them, 
I think they just use them as kind of conversation starters. Mm, so kind of nice. like, what do we think about this value? Like kind of discuss sort of thing, you know, and just kind of randomly choosing values and what, you know, what do people Love think that. about this? Yeah. We're getting some good tips on yeah. different ways to use these cards. The power of mm. these cards is, or the potential of these cards is amazing. And you, you're asking about people who are already in workplaces, how they respond. But, and it's yeah. Sometimes we find that, say, with teachers or with medical professionals, using the cards just gives them a little space to reconnect with why they got into that career in the first place. Mm. When everything can seem a bit overwhelming, overbearing, and uh, just a bit dismal, yeah, they can reconnect sometimes with just that glimpse of oh yeah, that's this is why I'm a teacher. Special. Yeah, and that's quite a privileged moment to, to be in. I think that. So it's, I think it's great for you guys to be exposed to this type of skills training at, at such a formative mm-hmm. time in your careers. It's been interesting. I've been I've been going through a bit of a, a period for the past few months where it's I haven't felt like my values were being questioned really. Mm. Well, I, I have at times, but not to the point where I needed to really get back in, you know, and, and sort of do a proper card sort. I didn't. I didn't mm. ever feel so. Um, so I was almost complacent enough that I, I, I was I was happy with what was happening or just sort of letting it happen either way though but I I remember I, they were always in a place in my room and when I look at them whichever the top card was if in a previous sort it had it had come up as the card that I was going to sort of stick with for, for, for mm. a, a few weeks or something and do values-based actions with it it I could remember almost that time of my life like what I was feeling then mm. and sort of where I was and, and just in terms of sort of recall it's a really mm. interesting tool as well mm. yeah right. mm. I love that you just said values-based actions because mm. I was going to say we didn't really talk about that did we so the, mm. the sort of second part of that exercise yeah. was translating it into behaviors and actions mm-hmm. which is often quite tricky mm. that's sort of the I don't know like the, the clincher for me is, is you can talk about something all you want and have all of these ideas but it's and then she goes oh and you actually have to do one of these in the next <laughs> like, oh darn you have to actually use the tool um yeah it's the vbas the values-based actions mm. wow yeah. hey jamie good work <laughs> mm. right peace supers i'm pausing there Thanks very much to Paul, Jamie and Leo for their openness and reflections. I hope you enjoyed listening. In part two, we'll continue the conversation, talking about how we can skillfully relate to the content of our minds and also the focus of the new protocol on developing the skill of noticing the body. If you like this episode or the podcast, could I invite you to share it with one other person? I'm really keen to spread the behavioural science and skills with more people. You can get in touch with us at peoplesoup.pod at gmail.com. On Twitter, we're at peoplesouppod. On Instagram, we're at people.soup. And on Facebook, we are at peoplesouppod. Thanks to Andy Glenn for his spoon magic and to you for listening. Have a great week, peasoupers, and bye for now. <laughs> and it brought me back to a memory when I was in Torquay, Devon, in a, in a disco dancing competition to Come On I Leave by Dexter's Midnight Runners. Wow. So I think if it's only for the next few weeks, that's what I'd choose. That was my big dancing moment. <laughs> <laughs>